Welcome to the podcast. Pilates for PTs, from business to clinical. Hi, y'all. My name is Stephen Dunn. I co-own Core Therapy and Pilates in Austin, Texas, and I'm the founder of Pilates for PTs. I've been a physical therapist for over 20 years, and I've been teaching Pilates and Gyrotonic in my physical therapy practice for the last 15 years. In this podcast, I interview experts from all over the world so that you can learn more on how to grow your business or how to improve your clinical skills as a Pilates instructor in the physical therapy world. Thanks for listening. So what's up, guys? Hey, it's Stephen Dunn here from Core Therapy and Pilates, and I'm here with my brother, Dr. James Dunn. He's in from Northern California, and he's a urogynecologist. So we're going live today on my business Facebook page. We're also going live down here on our marketing page. So we're going to be looking up here, but we want both of, both groups to hear this uh, message. Um, this message down here for the marketing group, this has nothing to do with marketing. This is going to be clinical, um, but everyone here working with... Um, personal training that typically has questions about um, pelvic floor health and uh, things like that. So I think it's going to be very applicable to this group. But to the group up here, the, my uh, my business page, um, we get so many questions in the clinic on a daily basis about pelvic floor strengthening, about Kegels, about, you know, all these things that, that come into play whenever, um, whenever we're working with back pain. Um, a lot of Back pain is contributed to uh, weakness in the core, weakness in the abdominals, weakness in the multifidus, uh, but also weakness in the pelvic floor. So what I wanted to do today is have uh, Dr. Dunn go over a little bit of, first of all, what is a urogynecologist? Because that's a question I get a lot whenever I discuss what he does. Um, and then a little bit of some, uh, I'm going to ask him a few questions to kind of see if my audience can get some uh, helpful information out of this. So first of all, Jamie, Dr. Dunn, tell me a little about what is a urogynecologist. I get asked the same question, and I've been doing this for a long time, but a lot of confusion. Uh, I started off as an OBGYN uh, doctor and did uh, four years of residency, but then uh, went back for three years of additional uh, training in pelvic floor <clears throat> therapy, uh, conditions like urinary incontinence, uh, fecal incontinence, uh, pelvic prolapse, so primarily uh, female urology with a special interest in pelvic floor anatomy and pelvic floor uh, surgery. And and way the way I kind of explain it when people ask me questions about like, well, should I see my uh, OBGYN or should I see a urogynecologist? What, what I explain is, well, if you've ever had your wisdom teeth pulled, you can have your wisdom teeth pulled by a dentist. But if you go to an oral surgeon, he's a little more versed and trained and he does it, does more of it. And Correct. so you could go see a, a, a traditional, a regular OBGYN to do most of what you do, Correct. but that's not what they do all the time. Correct. Yeah. yeah. yeah my 75% of my practice is exclusive pelvic floor therapy and pelvic floor problems. Do you do any OB at this time? I do not deliver babies anymore. Gotcha. That's what I thought. So, I, so there's the kind of the, 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 uh, the differences between the two. Now, anyone that comes on, I see we've got a few people joined in. Just uh, if you have any comments, uh, put them below, and we'll, we'll make sure to answer your questions. So, um, so my first question is: Is can you tell us a little bit about urinary incontinence, stress incontinence, as far as how frequent it is, and a little bit about how you treat it? For sure, it's the uh, number one consult that I get is uh, urinary incontinence, and then urinary incontinence is a broad category with multiple types. 
And that is what we try to do with their first consult is, is figure out and tease out. Is it uh, stress incontinence with coughing and laughing and sneezing and exertion? Jumping is and what jumping we hear. And trampolining, I hear all of the, those questions like that. Um, and then um, the other type of incontinence uh, that's not as common but still very prevalent uh, is uh, overactive bladder, which is a syndrome of urinary urgency, urinary frequency, and uh, getting up at night too many times. So those are the two most common. And then there's a, another group that has a little bit of both of those types, and we call that mixed urinary incontinence. And so um, that's kind of sums up the, you know, the majority of the incontinence uh, that I treat. As far as treatment and options, um, yeah, that's another whole topic. We could talk about that <laughs> for an hour. But I'll give you the, uh, the, the fast consultation. The cliff version, notes. The cliff notes. So, <laughs> Do they still make cliff notes? <laughs> I don't even know if they still make cliff notes, but they so, sure made them when I was a kid. <laughs> that, that, yeah, English, yeah. I did not like English. That's why I went to school. So for, um, for stress incontinence, I mean, and for overactive bladder, the best treatment is, is going to be your pelvic floor therapies and what I call behavior and lifestyle modifications incorporated with pelvic floor therapy. Um, uh, having uh, women do practice their kegels and more importantly teaching them how to do the, the kegel exercises correctly we've been able to see that um, there's probably 20 or 30 percent of women that don't know how to isolate their muscles and so they need extra training um, there's medications for overactive bladder there is some neuro stimulation uh, therapies out there that, that stimulate the pelvic floor and the sacral plexus um, Botox is my new favorite treatment for, um, for overactive bladder. It doesn't help with stress incontinence. Um, I do a lot of Botox injections there in the office, uh, through the, through the, uh, with the cystoscope. Um, and then last resort, um, for stress incontinence is, is the surgical things that I do, uh, the slings and injections. Um, but like I mentioned, I try to get everyone to work on, uh, behavior and lifestyle changes in, in pelvic floor is my go-to for, for women with incontinence. Now, you mentioned um, the last step being a, a surgical intervention. Can you talk a little bit about the program that you've run and the success that you've had with people that I can't remember the number, but it was over 80% mm -hmm. of people that are not having to have surgery because of the program that you're taking them through. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely, because that's my uh, my go-to because it actually treats um, both types of incontinence. So it treats overactive bladder, which is sometimes called urgency incontinence, and it uh, treats stress urinary incontinence. And, it, and it, I just call it pelvic floor therapy. Um, it's, it's a comprehensive uh, program um, with my nurse or my nurse practitioner. Um, and you come in for weekly visits, uh, about 30 to 40 minutes per week per visit. We do about six to eight visits to get the maximum benefit. Um, and, and as you mentioned, about you know, 70, 80% plus of patients are, are getting significant benefit and are able to avoid surgery and are able to avoid taking medications. Um, in the program, the, uh, it's a combination, <clears throat> excuse me, of, uh, <clears throat> behavior change and meaning, um, what, you know, how much do you drink and how often, uh, do you go to the bathroom and, uh, and of course teaching and reinforcing the pelvic floor exercises. Um, we have, you know, biofeedback to help, uh, women isolate their pelvic floor muscles stronger and better. <clears throat> and then we do use an electrical stimulation, uh, protocol to, to, kind of basically overstimulate the pelvic floor to, to uh, help uh, uh, regenerate muscles and nerves and 
uh, get the pelvic floor uh, working like it's supposed to. Do these women learn a program to do at home in between those visits, the, in between those weekly visits? Right. Yeah. So that they definitely get homework, uh, and we and we call it homework because um, y- if you don't do the homework, you, you know, you, you're not going to learn the lifelong things that you need to, to do, you know, the rest of your life as far as to maintain the pelvic floor. Uh, most of the women have had children 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and completely forgot about their pelvic floor strength. And, um, and we always joke and say, use it or lose it. And we're, we're trying to help them rebuild it and, and, and relearn it. And, and then we also have a home device that <clears throat> is available that uh, women will sometimes use if they want don't want to keep doing the program you know, on an ongoing basis, which, which works great. So and that's a, like a, a, a portable E-STEM type right, of unit? Yeah. It's a vaginal probe with the electrical stimulation uh, uh, protocol. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, you know, it's interesting. As a PT who specializes in back pain and Pilates, we, you know, specialize in Pilates, a lot of my clients come in with back pain and they don't tell me about the stress incontinence or those things. They just tell me about the pain and the things they can't do because of the pain. And then typically when we take them through the program, um, on our program being some hands-on manual therapy and, and Pilates and gyrotonic training, once we take them through the program, a lot of times two months, three months later, they say, well, I'm no longer having these issues with stress incontinence. Even though they didn't tell me that at the beginning, we're re-educating the pelvic floor and teaching uh, core work with, with everything we're doing. And what he said is that lifestyle change. And if you, if you go in and do something 30 or 40 minutes or an hour a week and you don't make it a part of your life the rest of the time, it's kind of pointless. Uh, it doesn't seem to carry over. Right. Um, and so we, you know, we teach homework to all of our clients and the, ho- the clients that do really well are the ones that do the homework and the clients that don't do so well. Um, they don't really, they, they expect us to fix them. Um, and if people can take a little bit of an ownership in this uh, process, which it sounds like you're allowing people to empower themselves through the process before they have surgery. And by the way, this is a surgeon giving people all of these opportunities to avoid surgery. So that's one of the coolest things that when him and I chat about this, um, and never did I realize when we ended up in our own fields that our fields would kind of be so similar and uh, we would be able to have these kind of conversations. But I now know that all of my clients, I shouldn't say all, but a lot of my clients have pelvic floor issues because we specialize in treating women that are 45 and above. And again, they've had babies 10 years, 20 years ago. So now the last thing, we're going to wrap this up, but I want you to just go over a little bit of anatomy. Um, I get asked about the pelvic floor anatomy frequently, and I just kind of reference it as a sling underneath the pelvis. And I don't get into any more detail than that because it kind of confuses people. Um, but I wanted you to just just briefly go over the anatomy, and this will be the last uh, question unless we get any questions that come up on the on the uh, board. Um, but just kind of go over the anatomy, and then we'll and then we'll wrap it up here in a moment. Yeah, the main thing of the pelvic floor is you have you know you have the bony parameters of the of the of the pelvis and they're not going to change because this is fixed. But the the pelvic floor muscles um, basically act like I, I call it a bowl, and so it's a pelvic floor um, bowl. Of course, the bladder, the urethra, the vagina, the the gyn, uterus, and uh, pelvic and uh, organs are there, and of course the uh, rectum and the uh, anus. So you have three very important functions coming through the pelvic floor in a tight space. Um, and that's why they say, you know, when you have dysfunction of one, you can have, you know, dysfunction of all three. So it's, it's a tricky uh, thing. But the, think of the levator uh, plate. It's called the levator ani. It has three muscles. Um, they all have a bunch of long names. So I'm going <laughs> to just call it the levator uh, ani 
plate and because <laughs> it's uh, it's a lot to memorize. It's a mouthful. And it's, and it's too much. It's like just you want you want the big picture. The big picture is everything sits on the pelvic floor. It has tonic strength that just is resting and holding. But more importantly for incontinence is that quick uh, squeeze that the, the pelvic floor does to hold urine and to keep women uh, from not having urinary or fecal incontinence. And so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting how it has to have the support, um, but it also has to have the, the function uh, you know, to, to hold, uh, you know, our, our daily uh, activities, our, you know, urination, defecation, and obviously sexual response. So it's, uh, and of course, it's innervated by the pudendal nerve, which comes off of the, the sacrum two, three, and four. Um, it's called the sacral plexus, and so the pudendal nerve, you'll hear that a lot, um, innervates the, the, the levators and gives it its, uh, its strength. And we see a lot of people with L5-S1 nerve issues, with sciatic issue, sciatica issues and things like that. So that's just a little further down the chain. So the sacral nerves are coming out down through here in the sacrum, right through these little holes. You can see them right there versus a lot of what I deal with with back pain is nerve problems from the disc that are coming right here as the lumbar are stacked up. So, yeah, sure. all right. Well, that's, that's all we got for you guys today. Um, we're going to be putting together some uh, more information moving forward. We're going to put together basically that little uh, program that he does. We're going to make a course out of it and, and have available in the next uh, few months. So we just wanted to kind of come on, uh, discuss a little bit of information. And anyone has questions, reach out to us through the Facebook group. Um, reach out to us through, um, through the Facebook page, excuse me. And, um, and we'll be putting some more information out about pelvic floor health because, again, we see how important it is on a day-to-day -day basis with uh, all the folks that we treat. So, and we did one of these discussions. It's been several months ago, and we we talked about yeah, pelvic floor health, and we talked about some um, the programs that, that Jamie does, uh, Doctor Dunn does for his uh, pelvic floor uh, patients, and we talked a little bit about the difference between. What is, what is a urogynecologist and what um, is the difference between seeing a urogynecologist and a uh, regular OBGYN for the kind of surgeries that he does? And my reference or my discussion was I like to com compare it to a dentist and an oral surgeon. You can get your dentist to pull your wisdom teeth or you can get an oral surgeon to pull your, dentist, your wisdom teeth. Um, both of them can do the job. It's just one of them does a lot more than the other. Uh, and one of them would be more of an expert of the surgical part and one would be more of an expert of the um, other things. Um, and so I think that's a real simple way to, uh, to, to talk about it. Now, if anyone has any comments, put them below and we'll be happy to answer any questions. Um, but what I wanted to do is just continue the conversation because something that is um, that I find is of importance or that I find is um, we're at a place now where it's it's okay for women to basically have urinary incontinence. There 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 seems to be a the push, the message from the the watching TV, it's all about medications or it's all about diapers, wear diapers, adult diapers. And I think there's a different way of approaching things other than just spending money on adult diapers. And I can't remember the, the figure, but the amount of money spent on adult diapers, billions, billions versus the actually trying to get it taken care of way less mm -hmm. on a yes. yearly basis. Yes. So with that said, um, thanks for being here, Dr. Yes. Dunn. Yes, um, wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, and yeah, we got to spend some time for Thanksgiving and he's leaving today. So we, I took advantage. I was like, hey, give me, give me 10 minutes and let's go through some stuff. So my first question to you is, is if, if a woman is having 
when is when is the right time for a woman to come see you? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, probably. I mean, I get consults all the time. Ignore that. Um, and with you know more advanced uh, problems, moderate and severe problems, and older women. But I think uh, the best time is uh, 30s and 40s after childbirth. Uh, definitely start on some kind, you know, pelvic floor therapy on their own. Um, if the symptoms progress or don't respond to simple uh, Kegel exercises and pelvic floor training at home, uh, weighted cones, vaginal weights, things like that that you can do on your own, then yeah, physical therapy. More aggressive treatments, mm-hmm. uh, but I would start right after childbearing. So basically, is it is it normal to be having any urinary incontinence? It's not normal. It's just uh, it's common. common. It's common. So it's a common thing. It's not like uh, I get that question a lot. It's it's just a common consequence of childbirth and pregnancy uh, is the number one risk, mm-hmm. especially vaginal deliveries. Um, you get some protection from from cesarean sections, but uh, pregnancy itself is the number one risk factor. And if someone comes in with urinary incontinence, the, the, the treatment plan doesn't start with surgical intervention. It starts with other stuff first, correct? Very rarely does someone come in and already made up their mind. They're like, I want surgery because of whatever they've heard or read, or my friend had surgery and I want that surgery. Um, most women come in and say, yes, I prefer conservative, <clears throat> non-surgical medications if there are uh, therapy. Mm-hmm. So. And then if, if if someone goes through the conservative treatment, they have the they do the Kegels, pelvic floor strengthening. They do the um, the possible probes and e stem training. What what kind of um, what what's the numbers of people, the percentage of people that go through that program and then end up needing to have surgery? So we'll go to the positive about seventy to eighty percent uh, improve or you know significantly get better where they don't need surgical therapy mm-hmm. or, or, the, or or other therapy. So that leaves about probably fifteen or twenty percent of women who do uh, need surgery or or, or fail conservative options. And and let me ask you this: you and I have had this conversation. If you watch the TV, you see all these uh, lawyers advertising if you've had mesh surgeries to call them for this and that. So I think there's um, there's been some uh, maybe misinformation or some bad information out um, on these mesh products where I have people ask me questions about the mesh because they've seen the lawyers advertising. Right. Um, and that's something that I don't really understand or know, but you mentioned to me that if, if, if you were concerned about the mesh, that... that no surgeries would be happening. It's kind of what we talked about. It's been several months ago, yeah. but but with the, the mesh and the kind of fear factor out there of if you get this uh, incontinence surgery um, and they're using this certain mesh, that there's going to be a long-term problem or a lawsuit after. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, the mesh uh, surgeries are definitely there. <clears throat> they have mesh surgeries and they have non-mesh surgeries that I offer, uh, and and you basically. We have that long discussion as far as the consent process. Do you want this with these risks and benefits in this surgery? The main concern with the, the, the lawyer ads is based on the pelvic surgery uh, with mesh. It, it does have a higher complication. I haven't been doing uh, that mesh surgery. Um, I still do the sling surgeries, but with a longer discussion and, and, and say, yes, every surgery has risk. The mesh surgery has some specific risks only related to the mesh and so you just have to say the risk are 90% plus for success and a couple percent chance of those things you see on TV and and then you go from there. Got it. 
and process. Got it. Well, these are just some things that, that questions that I get, questions that I don't always know the answers to. And so while you were here, I wanted to, to yeah. go through and ask sure. a few questions. It doesn't look, we've got a few people that have jumped in. Hey, Jared, what's happening, buddy? Uh, we don't have any questions that have popped up. Um, so let me, let me finish with this one. Um, if someone goes through the uh, procedure or they go through the surgical procedure for a sling, for example, what kind of recovery is 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 after that and how long before they're able to do normal exercise and how long are they sh when should they start doing kegels probably the right after surgery start your kegel uh therapy because that doesn't disrupt or injure uh you know complicate the recovery um for after the surgeries and i typically do a, a combination of pelvic surgery like bladder lifts and sling surgery so that i ask those ladies to go slow for six weeks mm -hmm. i'm not do nothing. I want them to get their cardiovascular fitness so they can walk and treadmill and swim and, and, and do light. I just ask them not to lift anything heavy. Um, and low and if, impact. Low impact. Um, we made the number up 20 pounds. Don't lift more than 20 pounds, but we don't have a study that says yes or no. So, <clears throat> so I tell them be moving, uh, but just be you know, mindful of uh, how much pressure you put on the pelvic floor. Got it. Because that's a question that I get. And usually by the time they're coming to see me after surgeries, it's been more than those six weeks um, just based on the whole process. Um, but that's a question that I've gotten. And, you know, six weeks is kind of a, um, a safe zone for many things in medicine. You know, yeah. Bones, fracture, fractures heal in six weeks. A lot of stuff happened in about six weeks. So that's typically a, a safe answer. But I just wanted to get, get your clarification of that. All right, guys. So with that said, we are done for the day. Uh, hey, Andy, what's happening, buddy? Um, so if you have any questions, if you're watching it later on the replay, uh, put some questions down below and, and we'll be happy to answer them. But uh, I got Jamie in town for the rest of the day and I wanted to take advantage of uh, sharing some information that uh, can be useful to our uh, our our clientele. So with that said, thanks for your time. Uh, thanks for your time, Jamie. And thanks yeah. for your time for watching. And uh, we'll see y'all on the flip side, guys. Now he's got a Pilates class. Pilates. Peace, guys. <laughs>